break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 28th of July, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about mass incarceration and voter disenfranchisement here in the United States. Also about how vaccine apartheid is continuing apace. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we start with the possibility of U.S. troops leaving Iraq. Well, in a fairly unexpected move, President Joe Biden and Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadimi signed a deal yesterday that all U.S. combat forces would leave Iraq by the end of this year, at least ostensibly marking an end to the U.S. military engagement in the country after roughly 18 years. But it is a bit more complicated than that, and the announcement reflects quite a bit in terms of Iraqi politics and the U.S.'s broader posture in the Middle East. Now, the crux of the agreement is that combat troops, quote-unquote, will leave, and the U.S. will only stay on in an advisory and training role. The issue there is the 2,500 U.S. troops in-country now are there already, primarily in an advisory and training role. And Biden also stated after an Oval Office meeting with Kadimi that the U.S. posture would be set up in such a way to deal with, quote-unquote, ISIS as it arises. So while a small number of special forces and some helicopter support will be moved out of the country, it not only won't change much in terms of the overall troop commitment, but it leaves the door open, especially for special forces to run operations in the country on an ad hoc basis. And despite all that, for the Iraqi prime minister, this was undoubtedly a crucial statement for Biden to make. Since January of 2020, when the U.S. assassinated a top Iraqi military commander in a drone strike, he, that's the prime minister of Iraq, Kadimi, has been under pressure over U.S. troops remaining in the country. The parliament voted in early 2020 for all U.S. troops to withdraw, and there have been low-level attacks on U.S. assets in Iraq as part of a broader climate of opposition in the country to the U.S. presence. Kadimi then started to negotiate over the withdrawal this year, but after Iraqi negotiators said they had reached an agreement in principle for U.S. withdrawal, the U.S. side made light of that fact and more or less said they had no plans to leave, clearly undermining the prime minister. The prime minister is seen as being more pro-American and it isn't clear he wants the U.S. to leave anyway. There's also a non-insignificant minority of the Iraqi political class that also wouldn't mind the U.S. sticking around because they view the U.S. as a protector and leverage against their political opponents who tend to have good relations with Iran and feel the U.S. presence violates the sovereignty of the country. Kadimi seemed to be trying to play both sides there while leaning a bit more in a Western direction, but has been forced to take a step back after the attempted arrest of a leader of the Popular Mobilization Forces, or PMF, the backbone of the fight against ISIS, 
collapsed around the prosecutors there. Kadimi then ended up attending a massive PNF military parade and what was clearly a sign that he was trying to repair the damage and repair the relations. So when you put it in that context, the U.S. announcement seems aimed at stabilizing Kadimi's position, making it appear he isn't a U.S. puppet, and that, in fact, he's right in line with the desire of many people to get U.S. troops out, but it also allows a preservation of the basic U.S. presence in the country. And on the U.S. side, undoubtedly, this is also self-motivated, makes it easier for their friends in Iraq to support a U.S. security, quote-unquote, presence, which is key for the U.S. in their struggle to make sure Iran does not gain more regional influence. And also there is, with even a small withdrawal, a broader shift of U.S. focus towards Asia, which necessitates finding ways to try to manage imperial commitments in the Middle East with a lighter footprint. All in all, then, the announcement of the withdrawal of combat troops isn't necessarily as meaningful as it sounds, but it does reflect the broader challenges the U.S. faces maintaining an essentially colonial presence in Iraq, given the popular discontent among a large section of the population on this issue. The global COVID case count is 40% higher this month than last month as the Delta variant rampages around the world, causing renewed outbreaks just about everywhere there are significant numbers of unvaccinated people, whether that be Missouri, Haiti, or essentially all of Africa. As COVID continues to rage, curbing the pandemic seems even further out of reach as global efforts to increase vaccination continue to fail miserably. Despite all of this, the World Trade Organization, which is a key cog in this conversation because they control the issue of a vaccine patent waiver, has announced that their negotiators, essentially ambassadors, the people who represent the different countries in the WTO, are now going on a six-week vacation despite having not made progress on the issue of the vaccine patent waiver. And amazingly, they decided to do this despite opposition from the WTO Director General and the WHO Director General, both of whom urged the ambassadors to keep on pushing until the waiver issue was resolved. And of course, it's an issue that is of critical importance. The more the virus circulates among large numbers of people, the more additional variants can start to emerge and erode the effectiveness of vaccines, setting the whole world back to square one. So far, efforts to speed up vaccinations are not really going that well. The basic problem is that rich countries in North America and Europe pre-ordered a huge amount of vaccines that could be produced this year, far more than they needed. According to one estimate, 53% of the near-term supply of vaccines, in fact. So that means the vast majority of the world is left to compete for a minority of vaccines. This has meant that COVAX, that's the vaccine mechanism designed to help poor and middle-income countries, is far behind what is needed because it can't buy enough vaccines. According to recent estimates, they are about 190 million doses behind where they expected to be in their inventory at this point. And this has left COVAX holding out the begging bowl for rich countries to give up some of the vaccines that they don't need. And now those countries and the big companies like Pfizer that are based in those rich countries have pledged to help others. but Honestly, they aren't. The EU, for instance, according to Reuters, has donated less than 3% of what they have pledged. Doctors Without Borders is reporting that Pfizer has allocated only 11% of its vaccine deliveries to date to low- and middle-income countries directly or through COVAX, and Moderna has only allocated three-tenths of a percent. The other issue is the production side. 
making more vaccines is something that's being held up by the fact that various elements up and down the supply chain are in fairly short supply. And the companies that make them are also bound by contracts that are related to the rich countries already having bought up many of the vaccines. Bioreactor bags, filters, raw materials, and trained workers are all seeing bottlenecks in the supply. Most of these ingredients come from wealthier countries that have the most developed drug-making infrastructure, and it's hard for them to scale up fast without more help from wealthy governments to build out capacity, which none of them are really doing in a major way. As it concerns trained workers, many supply chain companies are saying they're having difficulties moving workers around internationally to the different facilities, and that there need to be some short-term exceptions to various immigration statutes to make that easier. Also, something that doesn't seem to be happening. And on top of all of this is, of course, the issue of the vaccine patent waiver. It doesn't solve all problems, but by unlocking the patents, you create the maximum ability for producers, suppliers, and governments to work together and maximize the world's drug-making capacity to increase the vaccine supply and curb COVID-19. And despite all this, with global public health hanging in the balance, the WTO, a key player, is taking a six-week vacation. The Sentencing Project has released a new primer on the mass voter disenfranchisement that occurs due to mass incarceration. They note that in 2020, 5.2 million people were ineligible to vote because they were in prison, on parole, on probation, or living in a state that prohibits people from voting even after serving all their time. They noted that the 11 states that place restrictions on voting for people even after they have served their entire sentence and any additional parole or probation contain 58% of those disenfranchised due to criminal convictions. They also note that, quote, Black Americans of voting age are nearly four times as likely to lose their voting rights than the rest of the adult population, with one of every 16 black adults disenfranchised nationally. They note also that during the civil rights movement, the issue of rights for the incarcerated, while not well known, was a feature of the broader progressive sweep. And between 1960 and 1976, the number of people disenfranchised due to a conviction actually dropped. But unsurprisingly, as the mass incarceration skyrocketed in the 1980s, states started disenfranchising more and more people, reaching a peak of 6.1 million in 2014. However, as the movement against mass incarceration has grown significantly since then, states have started to adjust their laws, leading to a declining trend, although, of course, the numbers are still quite significant. In Maine, D.C., Puerto Rico, and Vermont, there are no voting restrictions based on incarceration, and you can vote while in prison. In 21 states, you can vote as soon as you get out, even if you're on probation or parole. But overall, this is obviously a massive black mark on so-called democracy in the United States. It clearly has no other purpose than to add yet another punitive disproportionate punishment to the communities that are disproportionately targeted by the criminal legal system. And it's worth noting here that it's something of an outlier in terms of many other countries around the world. But either way, it shows yet again that all the U.S. rhetoric around freedom and democracy is just that. Rhetoric. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. 
And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Oh.